Christ has risen. Amen. Christ has risen. Christ has risen. Amen. Amen. Let's pray while we're all standing. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I know we're all jumping up and down for joy that Jesus is risen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come before you, God. We worship you. We thank you for this day that we can be here today, right now, before your presence. And Lord, as we open up your word that you have left for us through your spirit, I pray, speak to us. God, change us, transform us, illuminate God, and change us, God, thoroughly, through and through. Lord, we thank you. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Leo Tolstoy was a famous Russian author born in the early 1800s. And he was born into a prominent aristocratic family, and he grew up uh, at home with private tutors, so very well educated. And he began writing novels, and unlike many authors, he actually became famous during his lifetime. And, you know, some of the famous novels of his, War and Peace, and, and he became a commercial success. He became even wealthier. But shortly after the success of his novels, in his early 50s, Leo Tolstoy fell into a spiritual crisis. The idea of death and the fact that he was going to die permeated all of his thoughts. The realization that he would die burned into his mind. It was inescapable for him. And these thoughts actually brought him all the way up to the verge of suicide, which he later admits that he was not strong enough to go through with that. But this idea that he would die robbed Tolstoy of any meaning that he previously thought he had in life. His shocking realization was that success growth, development, living for something bigger, none of those things would withstand the sweeping effects of his own death and the death of his loved ones. To quote Solomon, all is vanity. As I was preparing for this message, I started reading Leo Tolstoy's Confessions, where he talks about this time where he realized death is upon him and, and his spiritual crisis. I, I seriously, I got sucked into it because the, the, the degree of clarity that Tolstoy had thinking about this idea of death and its effects on every part of our life, I mean, it, it's it's. You can't compare it, right? The, the, his clarity. And I don't agree with his conclusions, but his observations about death and the meaning of life are spot on. Let's go to the next slide. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, it talks about the sting of death. Now, this is going to be a bit morbid in the beginning, but I promise you'll be worth it. So stick with me. But, but think with me through what Scripture says. The sting of death is, I'm not going to tell you what the sting is, but I'll tell you in a second. What we see here is that death has a sting, and that death truly is a buzzkill, isn't it? Death waits for no one. 
Death doesn't respect anyone and anyone's schedules. It comes when it comes, and no one can stop the day of death. No king, no wealthy billionaire has ever found a way to escape. In fact, Romans 5, 17 says that death reigned. Death reigns supreme. Death is the only king that truly sits on the throne of all humanity. No one enjoys going to funerals. No matter how twisted someone's morals are, we all understand there's something really, really wrong about death. And how does the world respond to death? 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear. He says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? And it makes sense in that worldview. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's get the most out of life before life takes us and our life is taken. If we're honest with ourselves, right? We all know death is certain. We all know that death will be upon us, all of us, soon. And I just urge you, as we go through this message, I urge you, I plead with you, don't push that thought away. Just, just as you sit here, you can push it away later, but as you sit here, for some reason God has brought you here, and as you sit here, just, just let, it, let your mind think about it. Let your mind actually entertain the thought of what will happen to every single person living today. Just let it sit and let us think. You see, we all know that no matter how much pleasure we experience before we die, the effect will always be the same. You see, death is like multiplying by zero. For This is for the math people, right? It doesn't matter how much you add to your life, how much you build and add, and some people will come and try to subtract from your life, but you add, and maybe you'll even multiply your life. But at the end of the day, when we all die, it's like multiplying by zero, just it all gets reset right back down to zero. Death robs us of all meaning in this life. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, right? All of our work, for example, you can do the most amazing work. You can do the best job in the world. But the day that you die is the day that all of your work, all of my work, it loses its meaning. Even if it continues to help generations Forever, you as the producer cannot enjoy the value that you bring and brought to people. And let's be totally honest. Do we actually enjoy all the hard work of the people that, you know, put into all the things we enjoy today? Like your car that you drove on this morning, the, your phone that you use. Do you sit there every day thinking, you know, Steve Jobs or someone from Google for your phone? You don't care about it, right? You don't think about it. All of us are just consumed with our own lives, our own problems, our own happiness. No one cares. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, as he came, this is just man, as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again. Naked as he came and shall, and shall take nothing for his work that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? All work is nullified and meaningless in the face of death. 
all accomplishments. When we die, all of our bragging rights are stripped. We cannot boast in anything, even if the whole world continues to praise us, which it won't. All that praise is meaningless for those who have passed away. Think about this, church. All the greatest accomplishments in the history of the world, the greatest ones, the greatest people that have ever made the biggest impacts on the world, at best, at best, they are just some random historical fact that teachers force students to cram and study for, which they forget as soon as they're done with their exam, right? At best, I mean, we're not going to even attain to history book status, right? Cramming status. Maybe a footnote, right, in some book that gets forgotten and left on some library for hundreds of years at best. All accomplishments, all of it is meaningless in the face of death. All experiences, all pleasures. I remember we had a high school teacher when I was in 12th grade, and, you know, he was really friendly, and the students really loved him. And one time they asked him, like, hey, what do you think is the meaning of life? And he says, you know, I think the meaning of life is stories. You know, just having more stories, good stories when you're old, just to share with your grandkids. And that sounds cool. That sounds interesting. But if you really sit there and think about it, it's meaningless. So what you tell your grandkids? Okay, great. They enjoy it. So what they tell their grandkids? It's going to get forgotten. It's going to get lost. And the dead don't lay there in their graves you know, daydreaming and thinking about what a great life and what great stories they had. They have nothing. They're, they're, it's it. That's it. We're done. It's like this big, beautiful oak tree that grows and it flourishes and provides shade. It's amazing. and Everyone loves it. And then one day someone comes down and just cuts it down, removes the stump, and just puts new soil in as if it was never even there. Friends, this is the harsh reality of life. And I urge you, don't push this thought away. Just let it sit for a minute. Leo Tolstoy, on the verge of suicide at the age of 50, said, What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? And this question, it drove him into despair, into madness. And he said, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy him. And he was right with that question. The answer is no. There's nothing. Death will destroy all meaning. In this physical life, there is no meaning that is preserved past death. And not only does death destroy all meaning, but death also robs us of enjoying life, does it not? You see, when, we, when, when it comes to th this idea of death, we're really, we really have only two options. The first option is to think about it and actually stop enjoying everything around us, right? Because this idea of, like, this too shall end, it, it really kills all pleasure, doesn't it? Like, imagine you're watching a great movie that you're really enjoying, or you're, you're at some experience, maybe an evening with your friends, or some sports game, or whatever it is that you're enjoying. Just imagine you're enjoying it, and then just start thinking about the fact that this is going to be over really soon, that you're going to have to get in the car and go home, and you know, you're, you're, it's going to be over really soon. Are you going to continue to enjoy it while you're thinking about that? Absolutely not, right? Right? 
Because thinking about the end prevents us from enjoying it. Playing with your kids, and you just start thinking like, wow, they're not going to be small and cute for, a long, for, for much longer, right? You, you stop enjoying it. Imagine you have to go, just think back to the last time you had some huge test for whatever it was, you know, you know, to get out of school, to pass your class, whatever it is. Just imagine that a huge test that you had to do for work, maybe. Now, imagine your friend calls you that the day of your test. Your, your test is at one. He says, hey, I'm going to take you to your favorite restaurant and get you your favorite food right before your test. Are you going to accept that generous offer from your friend? You're like, no, get out of here. I can't, I appreciate it, but I can't enjoy any food right now. I have this thing coming, this looming thing coming, and I, I won't be able to enjoy even my favorite food because you know there's something that's about to happen, something really hard you're about to go through, and, and it, it stops you from enjoying your present moment. Well, death is worse and harder than any test here on earth, than any physical pain here on earth. Death is far worse than all of those things. So if we're honest about the reality of death, which is option number one, being honest, we become incapable of enjoying really anything. The second option is to close our eyes. To close our eyes. We can push the thought away. And that's what I do when I play with my kids. When they're small and their voices are cute and they're so sweet, I don't think about, oh, they're going to grow up, they're going to grow up, they're going to grow up. I just, I just immerse myself into that present moment and I enjoy that time with them. And because death, for probably most of us, is years and years and years away, we can push that thought away with no apparent consequences. I want you to imagine you're driving down Highway 1. It's along the California coast. Beautiful highway. And they just redid the roads, so the roads are super smooth. And you're driving, and the sun is setting. You've got the windows down. You've got that fresh ocean breeze. You're listening to your favorite song. And it's just, wow, this is amazing. And you just bought a new Tesla, so you're driving on your new Tesla. And all of a sudden, your Tesla fails. There's a bug in the system. You can't brake. You can't steer. You can't do anything. And you are driving straight off of the cliff. What's your reaction? Yes, closing your eyes will make the last moments of your life less scary, right? But I urge you that that's not the best thing to do. Closing your eyes is emotionally better in the short term. But keeping your eyes open at least gives you 1% more of a chance at survival. And you see, most people in this life, when facing the reality of death right down the road, seeing that everyone else is going right off this cliff as well, they close their eyes in despair. Out of despair of the, the fact that there is no chance to survive, we close our eyes you know what? All I have is a few more moments left, so I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm going to not think about that. I'm going to just listen to my music. I'm going to enjoy my favorite song. I'm going to breathe in the fresh ocean breeze, and I'm just not going to think about it. That is our approach 
That's all of humanity's approach is just to close our eyes. And people that say, well, I'm not afraid of death. They just got their eyes closed. They're not really thinking about it. If we're honest, like Leo Tolstoy was, and he was honest, he heard about death before. He was 50 years old. He's seen many people die. He's been to funerals. But it was only at the age of 50 when he gave it some honest and some real thought. When he realized the implications of his death, if we think about it, we will realize it truly is our greatest problem. But I urge you that there is a better way. I urge you that there is a way out. Let's go to the next slide. The word of God says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Let's go one more slide over. The sting of death is sin. This is a phrase I want to focus on. You see, if death is our enemy, which the word of God says it is our greatest enemy, then sin is what our enemy attacks us with. Sin is the weapon that death uses against us. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The reason we even have this great enemy, the reason our life is subjected to futility, meaninglessness, pointlessness, is because of death. And the reason we are forced to bury our heads in the sand in order to enjoy the last fleeting moments before our car goes off the cliff, so to speak, is sin. And sin is that thing that is wrong, and we all know it, but we all still do it. And despite all of our noble desires in our heart to be better, to do better, we still find ourselves doing what we ought not to do. We still do that wrong. Next slide. The power of sin is the law. The reason sin has such devastating effects on us is the law. Meaning sin is powerful not on its own, but because it is a violation of God's perfect Law. You see, God, we read in Scripture, He is infinitely perfect. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely holy and pure and just. And if God was not any of those things, then sin would not have been such a big problem for us. For example, if you've ever driven out of this church through that exit, you'll notice there's a sign. What does that sign say? Right here, outside. No left turns, right? No left turn. Okay, I'm glad there's at least some people paying attention. Well, when we built this building in 2004, that sign wasn't originally there. And so there were no, you know, so you, people could turn left or right. So what happened was, though, it took us about an hour and a half to get out of the parking lot because people would, people would, that need, would need to turn left. They would need to stand. They would need to watch for un, oncoming traffic this way. And once that's clear, you look to the right and you make sure there's no oncoming traffic here, right? And when, when there's a perfect gap for both of these, then they would turn left. Obviously, that took leaving the church parking lot like four times longer, right? So... 
Thankfully, we had some smart people that quickly put up a no left turn sign there. But that sign isn't actually a, a law that's enforceable by the state of California. It's just our own little sign to help us get out of church faster. So if you're pulling up and there's no cars behind you, it's not a sin. It's not wrong for you to turn left, okay? I've even asked the police officer, I said, can I turn left? Can I cross these lanes? He's like, yeah, sure, you can. So that is a, a law of bright church, right? And if you turn left, even if the church is packed, you're not going to get a ticket, right? Because it's not the law of the state of California. But if you break the law of the state of California by speeding, then you will get a ticket, right? And if you try, try to break the law of physics by jumping off a 15-foot building, right? The only thing you're going to end up breaking are your legs. Clearly, the level of consequence really depends on whose law you are violating, right? And breaking the law of God is even more intense than breaking, trying to break the law of physics. Breaking the law of God, sin, results in death, both physical and eternal. And it's very interesting because Paul expounds on this idea in Romans 7 when he talks about the way sin and law interact. If we can go right there, perfect, thank you. Paul writes, did that which is good, and he's referring to the law, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? He's like, is the law bad? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment, that's through the law, might become sinful beyond measure. What Paul is saying is God's law is good. It's really good. It's holy. It's just. It's pure. And if you can live by it, you're going to get along well. But sin, it's like this evil friend when you're a teenager that peer pressures you into jumping off the roof, right? Oh, only the cool kids can do that, right? And, and you get peer pressure and you, you jump off. And by jumping off, you violate the law of gravity and you break your legs, right? Gravity didn't do anything wrong to you. It's sin deceived you. Sin manipulated you into going against God's law. And now we are reaping these effects. So stepping back, law, well, the sin uses the law to produce death in us. And meaninglessness, hopelessness, the inability to enjoy life, and that willful blindness to reality, that burying our head in the sand like ostriches, all of that comes with the reality of death because those are the only ways that we can cope with death. But the good news, the very next verse, Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, can we just enjoy that for a second? Just thanks be to God. Although sin has come, death has come, meaninglessness, purposelessness, willful blindness to reality, but in God, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know this sermon was heavy up until now, but church, that's the point. The point is to give us a small dose of how real reality is. 
When I was talking about death, I wasn't exaggerating anything. I wasn't making things up. Oh, there's this thing that's, you know, something's going to fall on you from the sky if you're bad. No, we all know it's real. Everyone knows it's real. I'm not talking about anything new. It's just this topic that all of humanity, every person living here on earth, just does not like to think about. We just avoid it. But it's reality. It's real. The elephant is here, and it's in the room, and it's always been there. It's real. And the Word of God, instead of avoiding that reality, it addresses that reality. It says, no, no. I know how to solve that. I know how to fix that. You see, unless the patient accepts the fact that they have cancer, they will never accept Chemo, right? That treatment. Never. Why? Chemo makes no sense without you actually having cancer. But if this is guaranteed to kill the cancer, absolutely. It's the most precious thing ever. And this is what the gospel is. The gospel, church, is God's victory for us. We have a problem. We have an enemy. But God has Conquered, And that is the good news that we celebrate today here. And the whole world is celebrating that God is victorious, that God has won, that God has made a way where there was no way. Next slide. Second, there you go. Second Timothy 1.10 says, Our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death, that's through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through his own death, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death. Next slide. Hebrews 9 says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ's death on the cross, which we just remembered this week, it redeems us from our sins, from our sins, and from the consequences of our sins, that eternal death. How exactly does it redeem us? Let's go to the next slide. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. You see, our sins have earned death. Like, imagine you go to work, you do your work, and you get a paycheck stub, right? Well, all of us, through our evil works, through our wrong actions, through our sins, the wrongdoing, we have also earned a paycheck. And it says death. We've got a ticket, and when we can't choose to accept it or not, we have earned it. It is rightfully ours. 
Romans 5.17 says, Through one man's sin, death reigned. And again, the reason why death, sin has such powerful effects on us is because it violates God's perfect law. Sin manipulates us to go against his good and holy law, and death is that result. But, but, Jesus never sinned, right? This is, this is the key. This is the crux. Jesus never sinned. And this is why that doctrine is so precious. Jesus never did anything wrong. He was holy. He was perfect. He was pure. The only one man that wasn't supposed to die. The one man that didn't earn death. He died. Meaning he has paid the penalty for something he did not deserve, right? For something he didn't do. And that is how he becomes a curse for us. As the word of God says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In Revelation 1.17, Jesus saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Church, he's alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. If this message was heavy in the beginning, which it should have been if you thought about it, I hope that the good news of Jesus conquering death, it lifts that heaviness, and all that remains is joy, peace, and freedom. It would make sense, right, that our greatest problem of death would be overcome by someone who died and rose again, right? Like the gospel actually makes sense if we think about it. And if Christ was raised then we will be raised if we are in Christ. Easter or Resurrection Day, right, should be the greatest holiday in all of the earth because everyone is affected by death and the gospel is God's solution, is God's victory. It is the celebration of God's victory. If we can go to the next slide, Isaiah 25, verse 7 This is actually a prophecy in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, talking about what Jesus was going to do. It says, and he, that's God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Okay, so what is this covering, this veil? It's like, think of a blanket, right? And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. You see, the mountain that Isaiah is referring to, if you look at the context, is Mount Zion. What's another word for Mount Zion? What place is Mount Zion? Jerusalem. Thank you. Jerusalem. That's exactly where Jesus has died. This prophecy is about Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' victory over sin and over death The covering that is over all people, 
That's death, right? It says he will swallow up death forever. It's this veil. It's this dark, heavy blanket that weighs on all nations. Everyone is affected. No matter who you are, your gender, your color, right? When you've been born, it affects all nations. It's this dark weight pressing down upon all of us. And all we can do is not even look up and think about it, but just enjoy these last fleeting moments. But God, through Christ, On Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, he swallows up death. He overcomes it. You see, death made a mistake. It tried to kill the sinless author of life, Jesus Christ. But it's that one person that it had no right to kill. And this is why Jesus says, I now hold the key. The key is a representation of Access of rights, right, of power. I now hold the key of death. You know, if, if death was a school bully, right, and we're all the kids in the school, and, and the school bully is just walking around just terrorizing everyone every day, and everyone hates going to school because this bully just keeps picking on everyone, and you don't know if you're going to get punched today or not, and then a new kid shows up, and he's humble, he's quiet, no one knows him, but he's actually a black belt, right, in karate. And he starts, and the bully wants to assert his dominance, so he comes and he tries to pick on him. And as that noble black belt, he doesn't pick a fight. He just keeps backing up. He keeps, hey, don't do this. It's better not to do this. He just keeps walking away until he's in a corner, right? And then he stands there, and he just waits for that first punch. And the bully just in his nature, he can't help it, right? He's just, he's punking everybody. He just swings, boom, gives the kid a black eye. But that's when he just gave that kid permission to take him out, right? And that's what Jesus did. Death gave him a black eye, but that black eye doesn't last. That kid, he whipped him. And now that school, it's free from the terror and the reign of that bully. If they have pledged their allegiance to this kid, if they're on his side, the bully will no longer touch them. He will no longer mess with them because there is someone stronger. Because there's someone who now holds the power and the authority over that school. Church, Christ has overcome He has won. And today we celebrate. We rejoice in this victory of God. And church, if you have the if you have had the privilege of being a Christian for long enough to forget what life is like out there in the world, then I just want to remind all of us, including myself, that this world out there, it has nothing, absolutely nothing to offer to us. Don't forget that. Don't believe that lie. The only thing that this world has to offer us are distractions from death. That's it. It can only numb us, right? It can only give us that numbing medication, but not true healing, not true life, not true nourishment. Life belongs to Christ. And he is alive forever and ever. Meaning is found in Christ. Everything else, it's just sparkly glitter. It's a lie. It's a mirage. You think it's water. You go there. But all it is is just hot sand. Christ 
has the fountain of living waters. He is the fountain of living waters. And I just want to remind you, do not be deceived. And look, what's amazing is look at where Paul goes right after he's done declaring the victory of God. The very next verse, he says, therefore. So it's obviously connected because this word therefore means if this is true, then this is true or then do this. And he says, God is victorious in Jesus. Our greatest problem has been overcome. Therefore, on the basis of this reality, he says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The resurrection, it gives meaning to all things. And work is the natural response to the resurrection. Imagine we're on the Titanic, right? We hit the iceberg. We all realize we're all going down. We're all going to die. And there's no lifeboats at all, right? There's just life jackets. Well, you're going to freeze in the water in the next couple of hours. So what do we do? We call all the ships around. All of them say, no, we're, we're days away. Best of luck. What's our response we're going down to the restaurant. We're going down to the kitchen. We're, going, we're opening up all the bars. We're eating and drinking, and we're, we're going to die, right? We're going to die with our bellies full and our hearts merry. That's our response, isn't it? We're going down. Let us eat and drink, for tonight we die. But as soon as you hear that message, that there's a ship nearby, that it's on its way and it's coming and it's close enough to save you. What, what do you do when you hear that message that the ship is coming? Do you say, woohoo, let's go back down to the bar. Let's go back down to the restaurant. No, you switch from let us eat and drink for tonight we die into mode into we need to go and tell everyone mode. We need to go and get life jackets to everyone, right? Because if the ship goes down before the other ship arrives, we need to be floating. We need to survive. There are people down there in the bottom of the ship who didn't hear these good news. They don't know. They're still drinking themselves drunk. They need to know. They need a life jacket. They need to come out on deck so that they can survive when the ship arrives. That is the natural response to the good news that we are saved. And that's why that's what Paul commands us. Yes, the Titanic. Yes, we're still on the Titanic. Yes, help is on the way. But there is work to do. People need to hear this news. People need those life jackets. We can't go back to eating and drinking because we no longer die tonight. And we're called to be steadfast, to be immovable, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus has won, because he is coming back for his own, none of the work that you and I do for him, no matter how small, none of it is in vain. None of it is meaningless, right? He is the master. To him belong all things. He alone is worth pleasing and living for. And he will take note and remember the smallest little labor that we do for him from a pure heart. He knows all things. 
But if we continue to live as if Jesus has never won, as if this veil of death is upon us, then our life will be lived in vain. As I call the band up, the resurrection of Christ is God's victory over death and sin. This victory is hope to the lost. To those who are living under the shadow of death, this is the greatest news ever. And friend, if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. You could trust in him today. He's reaching out. He came into this world. He died on the cross and he was raised so that he can save you. So that he can save you from this this blanket, from this veil of this crushing weight of death. He wants to save you from that. Reach out and trust in him. Believe in him. I don't need you to say a magic phrase. I don't need you to commit to doing better and trying to be better. Trust in Jesus. Trust that he will provide. Trust that he will take care of you. Turn from your sins and follow him and you will have freedom from the fear of death. And to those of us who have believed, to those who have already trusted in him, God's victory confronts us, doesn't it? Because the only proper response to his victory is to abound in the work of the Lord. Church, Paul wasn't writing this letter to Timothy, his assistant. He wasn't writing this to some apostles. He wasn't writing this to some church leaders. He was writing this to the church of Corinth, the the just average Christians living in a pagan city, just like you and I today. And he says, because Christ has been raised, because Christ is victorious, abound in the work of the Lord. It's not a suggestion, guys. It's not a strong recommendation. It is a command based on the reality of the victory of God over our great problem. And the question for all of us today is, am I abounding in the work of the Lord? Not just participating and volunteering every now and then when it's very convenient for me. I'm not even asking, am I serving at church? That's not the question. That's just one way to abound in the work of the Lord. I'm saying, are you serving Jesus wherever he leads you? Am I waking up in the morning saying, Lord, I am yours. This whole day, it belongs to you. I'm going to go to work, and I want to serve you there. I'm going to come home from work, and I want to serve you there. I'm going to do... I have plans for the evening, and I want to serve you there. I want to live for you everywhere I go, with everything I do, with everything that I have. I am yours. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? May God find us faithful with what he entrusted to each and every single one of us when we stand before him on the last day. So help us, God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We worship you for your great victory. Thank you, Lord. This Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate your power over our great enemy. We no longer need to live in a terror 
of, of death and destruction. God, I pray, help us trust in you and help us always abound in the work of the Lord for your glory. In your precious, precious name we pray. Amen.